I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCE became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. is better. I don't know if you can tell, Andrea. I feel like there's still a little raspiness in my voice. Yeah, a little bit. It's not as bad as it was like a couple days ago or yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. <laughs> um, but my voice is a little bit raspy because I went to a Jonas Brothers concert um, two days before we recorded this. It was on uh, Wednesday, August 25th. This this is coming out the following Monday. Um, but I went to a Jonas Brothers concert which I'm obsessed with them. If you didn't listen to my last episode, <laughs> um, I was talking about how obsessed I am with them and how Joe Jonas reshared my dog's video. And I about died when that happened. Um, and so at this concert, I was fourth row, fourth row. And I held up a sign that said, we're here because Joe Jonas duetted my TikTok video because that's a thing that happened. And I'm not going to go into details about that because most of you probably don't care, but I'm going to share about it anyway. Um, but I won't go into details about like <laughs> the whole duet thing, but it had a backstory. I held up that sign and Joe Jonas freaking saw it. Yeah, He literally saw it and I got it on video and he pointed and winked at me and I have it on video. Yeah. So <laughs> that is so, I was literally like, screaming when I saw that video yeah. I was like oh, I don't like I was there I know. I know I know and I if you guys want to see the video I have it posted on like my TikTok and Instagram and YouTube all of that it's all Robin Haley um if you're new here but it like mm -hmm. I still can't believe it that he literally like saw my sign and like did that and I sent a message to Andrea and two of our other friends like right when it happened or right after it happened because I just needed to tell somebody but I don't even think I typed it all correctly and it was like what it was probably like <laughs> 9 30 10 o'clock in California and they're all everybody in that chat Andrea and my other asleep. friends or our other <laughs> friends were all asleep so nobody saw it till the morning and I didn't even bother to fix it I think it said like Joe Jonas saw like my and then sign was messed up or something it was it was a disaster but I was like screaming yeah. <laughs> so that is why my voice is uh, a little raspy because I screamed a lot but it was an amazing concert and um it was the best night of my life yay and you get to see them again in October yeah except that one we're like way in the back because I couldn't purchase front row seats twice it was expensive <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I bet it was. Worth it though, right? <laughs> it was so worth it. Anyway, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing pretty good, you know, just 
thriving and surviving, like I always say. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's life with a toddler. Yeah, true that. He's been on one too lately. I don't know what his deal is. I think he's just sick of being cooped up in the house so much. Oh, that's tough. So hopefully that'll change, change soon. Having faith. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys. So today, um, I like kept going back and forth of what I wanted to cover today, but then I decided to cover this case and I went deep into it and there's a ton of detail in it. Um, But I don't think it'll be like too, too long, but we'll see how that goes. So I am going to be covering the disappearance of Susan Powell. And there's other things that happen in the story. Um, I am going to give a trigger warning right now that this does include child death. Um, I will, again, trigger before that happens. So you guys can like fast forward if you don't want to listen to that part. Um, but it is, I think, still a really important story to tell because technically her disappearance is unsolved mm-hmm. and there's still a lot of things in this case that I think need to be discussed and worked on and talked about. Like lots of questions. Yes, a lot of questions. And I actually listened to the Crime Junkie episode on this because part of this case involves uh, like Child Protective Services and like that, you know, the Department of Family, shoot, what is it exactly? Family Services? Yeah, Department of Family Services. Um, and the co-host on Crime Junkie, Britt, she has fostered kids and has adopted kids. So that's why I wanted to listen to their episode specifically, because she kind of had some input on it um, that I thought was really interesting. So I'll kind of bring some of that up here. And there is a lot of information about this case out there, but honestly, I kind of kept finding new things in different sources and different podcast episodes. So I compiled it all. So hopefully this is a really good overview. And then also stuff has happened in as recent as 2019. And uh, like the Crime Junkie episode was recorded in 2018. So there's some like additional stuff on that. Oh, that's good. I didn't know there was any like recent like more recent updates on the case yeah there's some recent stuff nothing like like i said it still is unsolved but definitely some movement which is good yeah all right so let's just get into this case susan marie cox was born on october 16th 1981 to chuck and judy cox in alamogordo new mexico and i looked up how to say that and i spelled (laughs) it out phonetically in my notes because (laughs) i knew i wouldn't be able to say it she grew up and was living in washington when she met joshua powell at a dinner party in 2000 joshua or josh powell was born on january 20th 1976 to stephen and teresha or terry powell in puyallup washington which I also looked up how to say (laughs) multiple times. And I think that's how you say it. That's how you say it according to Google Translate. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah. The family, the Powell family, was part of the LDS Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And apparently uh, Stephen, Josh's father, was not really a big fan of the LDS Church. And this led to problems between him and his wife. In 1992, when Josh was 16, Terry filed for divorce from Stephen, and the divorce filing revealed some things about Stephen and the family's dynamic that's not the best. So it alleged that Stephen shared pornography with his three sons, who were teenagers at the time. Ew. And, yeah. Like, 
you know, teen teenagers are going to do whatever they do. Not with your dad, though. Yeah, exactly. Gross. Terry also said that Stephen treated them all poorly and didn't really discipline their sons, which led them to act out. Josh, who, again, at this point, he was only 16, allegedly killed his pet sister's gerbils. And then also one day, like, full-on threatened his mom with a knife. Wow. So he definitely was acting out and did not have a super smooth childhood or, like, super positive family life. And and his parents ended up splitting up. Okay. After high school, Josh began attending the University of Washington in Seattle. And his first romantic relationship happened here. It was with a woman he met through a local LDS church that he was attending while at college, and her name was Catherine Terry Everett, and they moved into an apartment together, but as their relationship progressed, he became very possessive of her, and Catherine later remembered Josh restricting her from seeing her own family without him. Her own family. Not his family. Her own family. So he just was, like, very possessive and controlling of her. And thankfully, she ended up, like, going to visit a friend in Utah and then decided to just stay there and ended up breaking up breaking up with Josh over the phone and, like, never seeing him again. So thankfully, she got out of that relationship. But that's kind of just an indication of Josh's personality and how he will be in future relationships. Sounds a little uh, narcissistic, a little bit. Just a little yeah, bit. just a little bit. I mean, he is a Capricorn, so like, you know, it's uh, I'm a Capricorn, and you like to be in charge, yeah. so I get it. But also, but there's a there's a fine line between wanting yes. to be in control and being like a control freak, though. You know, yes, and doing things that will like hurt others with your control. Like, yeah. I get it. I'm a planner. I like to be in control, but I would Same. never be like, you can't see your own family without me. No. Like, that's ridiculous. No. That's crazy. So in 2000, Josh met Susan Cox through an LDS church course, and they hit it off at a church dinner party in November 2000. And two months later, they decided to get married. Mm. So they were only together for two months before they decided to get married, which like, okay, that's real fast. Yeah, that's too fast. Like, I know, like, sometimes those situations happen and they actually work out, but that's, you don't know that person in two months. You just no. don't. Sorry. No. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On April 6, 2001, the couple married in an LDS template. Temp- I wrote template. Temple. <laughs> Not template. Temple. <laughs> um, in Portland, Oregon. Susan was 19 years old and Josh was 25 when they got married. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to judge on the age difference because... I don't think age difference is the worst thing. I will say, I think as you get older, age difference becomes less important. And when you're 19, that's a little, in my opinion, a big age difference, especially when you like just met. And knowing like, well, hearing the kind of person that he is and knowing the kind of person that he becomes. Are we drinking out of the same cup? We are. Oh my gosh, we are. (laughs) Yeah. The one that Julie made. Yeah. Julie, shout out to Julie. Shout out to our friend Julie who made us these super cute cups and we're both (laughs) drinking out of them. Cheers. But knowing the kind of person that he is and that he becomes, it seems almost like he was like, you know, because she was so young, it was an easy target, like targeting her because of her age because she would be more easy to control. Because when you're 25, 
uh, 19 seems like multitudes away from each other. I mean, 25 is older than I am right now. So like yeah. the fact that you're older than I am and you're going to marry someone that's 19, which to me, 19, I was a kid. Like, I know you're technically an adult, but yeah. I was not an adult when I was 19. I'm no, barely an adult not. now. Like, Yeah. You're a legal adult, but you're not like a grown up in any sense of the word. Right. So yeah, they were, they were young. Uh, Susan was very young and Susan's family was obviously skeptical um, just because she was so young and they hadn't known each other. And both Susan's parents and her sisters thought Josh was kind of weird. So they all kind of thought that Josh was weird and overbearing, but the two were in love and Susan dismissed those concerns. After they got married, they moved into Josh's father's house in Washington. And while living there, Josh's dad, Stephen, became a little bit obsessed with Susan. He would film her all around the house with some shots obviously being without her knowledge. And he apparently would also steal her underwear, read her journal, and like follow her around everywhere, even watching her when she went to the bathroom. Ew. Okay. This guy's obviously like some kind of <laughs> sadistic pervert. Yeah, that's that's too far. I mean, obviously yeah. we knew like something was something was awry when he's watching porn with his son, so true. <laughs> yeah. In 2003, Stephen told Susan about his feelings toward her, which remember, this is your son's wife. 19-year-old wife. <laughs> yeah. And there's actually audio of this confession and it cuz it was accidentally like recorded on a camcorder. Um, so there's audio of this happening and Susan was obviously shocked and disgusted and she rejected him. After that, Susan confronted Josh about her discomfort and the couple ended up relocating to a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah called West Valley. And Susan was a trained cosmetologist, but when they moved here, she began working at Wells Fargo and Josh kind of worked different jobs, including uh, one time being a real estate agent and also a trucker. So he didn't have like a set career. He was working in different jobs. In 2005, the Powell's first son, Charles or Charlie, was born and his brother, Brayden, was born two years later. As the family grew, Josh's controlling side that I talked about in his first relationship started to emerge more and more. And from everything I read, he wasn't physically abusive, but he had a very short temper and would like yell and break things. And then he also started controlling everything Susan did. She could only use the family's car with his permission, and she wasn't even allowed to use it to commute to and from work, meaning she had to bike seven miles each way every day. That's absurd. And it's not like he used the car for something and needed it. Like, she, he just didn't want her to use it. Yeah, it was just a control tactic. Josh also controlled Susan's spending, like, down to the penny, even literally making Susan knit her own socks so the family could save money. Oh, my gosh. Like. That's insane. I know. I mean, I get it if it was, like, if he wasn't already such a control freak and, like, you know, having all these ridiculous, you know, demands from her, like, okay, sure, knit your own socks, whatever, save money. But like, 
that's just crazy and socks like i feel like there's other things you could save money on <laughs> like socks are not that expensive yeah. like no you can get them from the dollar tree yeah exactly so he also controlled not only what susan ate but also what his growing sons ate and he would get frustrated when they would be hungry and would tell susan that they didn't need to have food at home since they got a meal at daycare um and they're growing like they're toddlers they need food and Susan would sometimes yeah. have to go borrow food from like friends or neighbors just to feed her hungry boys because Josh wouldn't let her buy enough groceries. That's terrible. Yeah. That's unacceptable. Susan and Josh did try to go to marriage counseling, but Josh would never really participate. And eventually he just stopped going. And even though this was tough on Susan, her religion was against divorce. So she tried her best to make it work. And she was trying, but tensions just kept building because Josh continued to be in contact with his dad, who was still trying to make advances towards Susan. Oh my God, get a hint. Right? <laughs> so that, on top of everything else, just made Susan so uncomfortable. But again, she was trying her best to make it work because she didn't want to do something that was against her religion. She didn't want to get divorced. In 2007, the Powells had to file for bankruptcy, but not because, like, they didn't have money. They didn't have money because of Josh's ridiculous spending habits. They were over $200,000 in debt. Wow. So despite him literally making her knit her own socks, he was spending <laughs> so much that he put the family in debt. Wow. Susan was at this point trying to kind of pull away from Josh and was leaning more towards wanting a divorce, despite it being against her religion. She was kind of realizing that maybe this was going to have to happen. On June 28, 2008, Susan wrote a letter addressed to her family and friends to warn them about Josh. And this wasn't a letter that she sent. She put it in her safety deposit box, which Josh didn't have access to. And in the letter, she claimed that Josh had threatened to destroy her life if she filed for divorce or tried to take his kids away from him. Susan's sister heard Josh say to her, over my dead body, will you leave me and take the kids? So, wow. Sounds like a threat. threat. Yeah. Yeah. In the letter, Susan said, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it may look like one. So, you know, that's a little little telling. The next day, Susan recorded a video documenting her family's assets. And at the beginning, she said, quote, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us, that our assets are documented. And then she said, quote, I hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's clear that she was worried about something happening to her, and it seemed like her worry was specifically about Josh. And some people, like, contradict this and say that she was recording the video because a lawyer, like, a divorce lawyer had told her to, like, document their assets before going into divorce proceedings, which, like, maybe that's true, but she still said that stuff, saying, like, yeah, this is in case something happens. And they recorded a lot of their lives, right? Like the whole family. They were like really into that. So yeah. And I also like, I didn't watch the video because it was really eerie. Um, Mm -hmm. I started to, but it just, it's very eerie. And 
one of the sources that I had was explaining it enough. Um, But she was kind of walking around saying like, and this is Josh's TV. And this Mm -hmm. is Josh's this instead of being like, it's our TV or our this. Mm -hmm. She was kind of like referencing what was his and what he had purchased. So there was definitely like not a lot of trust in that relationship. Like he had conditioned her like these are my things that I bought. Like, right. Yeah. I, I watched the videos. Yeah. It was very disturbing. Right. It just, I know I started to, yeah. and then I had to stop. It was too creepy. Yeah. So jumping ahead to about a year and a half after Susan had written that letter and made the video, um, we are in December, 2009. And on December 6th, which was a Sunday, Susan and her two sons went to a church service at their LDS church around noon. And after church, they went back home and a neighbor was visiting Susan at her house. And she left around 5 p.m. when Susan had said that she wasn't really feeling well. And that was the last time that Susan was seen by anyone outside of her family's house. As that neighbor was leaving the house, Josh said that he was taking the boys sledding. And the neighbor remembered how he was like rushing out of the house as she was leaving Um, and kind of like, she was like, this is weird. Why is he all of a sudden like rushing out? But maybe he just wanted to go catch the snow, like before it started snowing again or something like that. At 830 that night, another neighbor saw Josh return home in their minivan and pull into the family's garage. At around 10 AM on December 7th, the next day, Charlie and Brayden had not been dropped off for day- at daycare like they had been every other day and this was really abnormal for the family they were usually on time and they would have called if like something changed mm-hmm. and so the head of the daycare was concerned and tried to contact both Susan and Josh but couldn't reach either of them so she then ended up calling the boys emergency contacts who were Josh's mother Terry and his sister Jennifer so the two of them tried to reach Susan and Josh as well and they couldn't So they called the police and the police actually entered the Powell's house that morning with the permission of the family. And they entered because there had been some carbon monoxide leaks in the area, like in homes. And they were concerned that there had been a leak and like the family was inside and it like made them pass out or something. So that's why they, you know, decided to enter and why the family let them. But when they went inside, they found none of the Powell's. But what they did find was really weird. There was a wet spot on the couch that had two box fans blowing at it. Josh later claimed that it was a red wine stain that Susan had spilled the night before and then like cleaned up. But why would you have two box fans blowing at it? Like, it's just really weird, especially since nobody was home. Yeah. In the house, they also found Susan's purse, phone, and wallet. And even more strange, the house was completely locked up as if no one had been there all night. And there were also no footprints leading to or from the house in the fresh snow that had fallen overnight. By now, Susan and Josh hadn't shown up for work and no one could get a hold of them. So they were actually reported missing that day, which is pretty quick for, you know, typical. But I guess like because they're adults and their kids are also missing, it's a little different from like when a teenager goes missing um, or just one person. So they were reported missing. Finally, around 5 p.m. that night, Josh and the boys just magically returned home. Um, Josh went down to the police station and they asked him where he had been. And he explained that he had taken the boys sledding around 
5 p.m. Uh, the day before. And then they went home and watched a movie. And then he claimed at around 12.30 a.m., he decided to take the boys camping because they wanted s'mores. Yeah, totally normal. I don't know about you, but that in and of itself sounds suspicious. Like, you're taking your four- and two-year-olds to go camping Mm -hmm. in the freezing winter, leaving at midnight during a snowstorm. Like, I don't even want to go anywhere at midnight, let alone take my kids anywhere at midnight. Yeah, driving in the snow, that's, I mean... You know, if you're used to it, I guess, but I hate driving in the snow. It's dangerous. Yeah. And, like, why would you leave at yeah. 1230 to go camping? Like, that's just weird. I don't care if you want, if your kids want s'mores, tell them to go to bed. It's midnight. Why are they up? Yeah, exactly. Why are they up at 1230 at night? Like, no, go to bed. You can have s'mores in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't need to go camping to make s'mores. You can make them in your oven. <laughs> no, you're right. You can The police also asked why Josh had not been answering his cell phone, and he claimed that it had been on low battery, so he was avoiding using it so he could save the battery. But a detective noticed that his phone was plugged into a charger in his car, so they were kind of like, okay, that's Mm -hmm. weird, but okay. During Josh's interview, detectives also noticed some cuts and scrapes on his hands. He was questioned for about two hours, and he, during that time, asked for an attorney, claiming, quote, They told me that I should have an attorney because they don't know what's going on. They said I'm pretty much in over my head, which like, I mean, I'm not going to blame you for asking for an attorney because like, it's your right. And also like, I would probably do the same thing, but he just doesn't seem concerned at all for the fact that his wife is missing. Like he kept saying, oh, she's probably at work. She's probably like this or that. But yeah, no, like they've checked everywhere. Right. And I don't know, for me personally, like if you're quick to ask for an attorney, that just screams guilt. Like I know you in like certain situations, like you should, but like if you're telling the truth and you're not at fault and you're not responsible, like they can, sure they can, I guess, like back you into a corner and like make you have a false confession. But usually that's like hours and hours into, you know, interviewing or whatever. Yeah. So Toward the end of Josh's interview, one officer actually told him that his story didn't add up and he was detained that night, but was let go like later. So he wasn't, it wasn't like he was kept for a ton of time. And the police thankfully deemed Susan a missing person that day. And they asked Josh to return the next day for another interview. The next day during Josh's interview, they executed a search warrant for the family's home. um, And, you know, he They did that purposefully so that he wouldn't be able to, like, get rid of anything. From the search warrant, police collected a bunch of boxes, bags, and a computer from the home. And they also found or reported that they found blood belonging to Susan and another unknown male, along with that letter that Susan had written and her $1.5 million life insurance policy. Whoa, that's a huge life insurance policy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the next day, police also went to the camp campground that Josh had claimed he was at the night before, and they searched there, and they did not find any evidence that anyone had been there camping. Because, like, remember, this is December in Utah. Like, nobody's going to be camping. Right. Um, so where Josh had claimed he was, they didn't find any evidence of, like, a fire or anything like that, that there had been somebody camping. Also to be noted, um, after Josh's car was seized by the police, he rented a car from the Salt Lake City Airport, which, I mean, that makes sense. You need a car to get around. 
But what doesn't make sense is he drove 800 miles in the two days he had the car. Like, that's a lot of driving to do in just two days in a rental car a few days after your wife, who is your young son's mother, went missing. Like, what are you doing that much? Yeah. Where are you going, Josh? Exactly. No. And the police also interviewed Charlie, who was four at the time, and he told them that they did go camping, and he said that his mom went with them but did not come back with them. Mm. And then a few weeks later, Charlie's teacher at school claimed that Charlie had said his mom was dead, (gasps) and Chuck and Judy Cox, Susan's parents, later also claimed that Brayden, who was two at the time, had drawn a photo of three people in a car and then told the daycare workers quote mommy was in the trunk oh my gosh how horrific yeah so i mean you can't take for certain things that kids say but it is very interesting like where would they mommy's dead like i mean kids don't know i mean they, they do i guess know that terminology but like why would they just randomly say that Right. It's not like something that they would see on TV, like, oh, my mom's in the trunk, and then repeat it. Like, yes. You know? On December 12th, six days after Susan went missing, her family held a vigil and prepared a 24-hour fast in hopes of her safe return. And Josh did, like, appear very sad that night. And Susan's dad, Chuck, did mention that he was concerned about the focus on Josh. Like, at this point, the family, I don't think thought Josh did anything wrong. One week after Susan went missing, Josh was supposed to go to the police station for a third formal interview, but instead of going to the police station, he just hired an attorney and full-on skipped out on the interview. Again, I understand wanting an attorney because you never know, like, even if you are innocent, like, it would scare me that the police are gonna make me say something or something I get that but full-on skipping the interview and just being like no I'm just and not even like explaining oh I'm waiting for my attorney to be in town that would make sense but he just skipped it suspicious like I said yeah he did give a DNA sample that day but like it didn't lead to anything because they didn't have anything to compare it to on December 18th almost two weeks after his wife went missing Josh took his two sons to Puyallup Washington to stay with his father, Stephen, for the holidays. However, on January 6th, Josh returned to West Valley to pick up, pack up his family's home. Not pick up, pack up. He claimed at the time that he had lost his job and wouldn't be able to keep the home. And so he left town again and they were now living up in Puyallup with his dad. Um, And then at the end of January, he returned back to West Valley to fix up the house to be able to rent it out. And that, you know, when he was in town then, uh, the day after he returned, the police got a warrant to seize the minivan that Josh was driving the night that Susan disappeared. So they were like, okay, he's in town, we're going to get it. Um, But unfortunately, they didn't find anything substantial in it, nothing Mm -hmm. that could lead to anything. That's surprising if she was in the trunk. I mean, I guess, you know, we don't really know, but. Yeah, I don't know if they had like cadaver dogs or anything, like, because I feel like if there's no blood, there's no yeah. way to really tell somebody was in there. Right. They could take, you know, there's like carpet. They could take like little samples from the carpet. But I guess if that specific area was not, oh, true. you know, mixed with her blood or something, you know, bodily fluids or whatever, then there's no way to tell. 
Right. And it's not like they can use DNA or anything because it was the family's car. So, of course, her DNA is going to be there. So not much was happening in the case. And on February 15th, 2010, Susan's family held a press conference that finally revealed some of the awful details about Josh. They shared how he had been physically abusive to her at least once. And so that was the only like source that I saw that he had ever been physically abusive. And they shared um, also how like controlling he was and that controlling behavior that he had. And then they also revealed that Susan had told her family and some of her friends that she was wanting to basically end her relationship with Josh before their wedding anniversary on April 6th. Mm -hmm. Like she had kind of told some of her family and friends, if things don't get better by then, I'm, I'm done. Wow. The first true search for Susan's body happened in April 2010, and it was a volunteer search of the campground that Josh claimed that he was went camping at the night before. Uh, or the night Susan had disappeared, but unfortunately, it didn't turn up anything. At this point, police had five of their 28 full-time detectives assigned to Susan's case, but there just wasn't movement happening. In September 2010, Chuck promoted a new legislation with Ed Smart, who's the father of Elizabeth Smart, who had been kidnapped in Utah and was found nine months later. And this legislation was a new law requiring that anybody arrested on suspicion of a felony to submit DNA. And as far as I could find this like bill was passed in 2014. And the the one that was passed in 2014 said that any person booked into jail on any felony charge would have to submit DNA. So I think it's the same concept, you know, if they're booked on suspicion, they have to submit DNA. As the one-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance approach, stuff with Josh kind of started getting very weird, in my opinion. On the exact one-year anniversary, Josh and his father, Stephen, claimed publicly that that Susan ran away with a man named Stephen Kocher, who was a man from Utah who had gone missing in Nevada the same month as Susan. And they claimed that Susan and Stephen had an affair and ran off to Brazil, where he had served an LDS mission. But I don't think anybody really believed this because there was no evidence that they even knew each other. And to me, this is just super suspicious. Like, why would you do that on the one year anniversary of your wife's disappearance? Like, even if you're trying to move on, like, no. Trying to redirect the spotlight and the guilt from himself onto her because you know he saw an opportunity oh this guy went missing around the same time let's let's see if we can concoct a story basically yeah disgusting so like i said this went nowhere and nothing really happened until the summer of that year or the next year on july 15th 2011 josh and steven announced that they were going to post parts of susan's teenage journals online And I'm not sure exactly why they wanted to do this. They probably, like, found some entries that would make her sound like she was someone who could run away or just something like that. But I feel like that's just so weird. Like, your wife and the mother of your children is missing and you decide you're going to release her personal diaries online. Like That's so tacky. Tasteless. And this, thankfully, was blocked by a judge in September before they released anything. So nothing ever got released. But... Just the fact that they were going to do that is really weird. 
in August, an altercation happened between Josh and Susan's dad, Chuck, and a judge gave them both anti-harassment restraining orders, meaning they now had to stay 500 feet apart from each other. And then nine days after that, police finally announced the first break in the case since it pretty much went cold in 2009. The police were headed to search an abandoned mine shaft near Eli, Nevada, which was about 240 miles or three and a half hours southwest of West Valley, Utah. Unfortunately, though, they searched for two days and didn't find anything, but we will talk more about some mines in just a little bit. A few days after the search ended, Susan's friend, Kiersey Hellowell, revealed what had happened between Susan and Josh's dad, Stephen, when the couple lived with him after getting married. So, like, not many people knew this, and up until this point, they, you know, I don't think police knew that this had happened, and Stephen was, along with Josh, making these public claims and stuff. And when this friend revealed how Stephen had made unwanted sexual advances towards Susan, I think it kind of, like, police were like, wait a minute. So, of course, Stephen denied everything, but this did lead police to be able to get a search warrant for his house in Puyallup. And, like, okay, be ready to want to punch someone because this made me so angry when I read it. During this time, Stephen Powell said, quote, I shared father-in-law, daughter-in-law flirting with Susan and maybe some sexual touching or whatever. And I enjoyed it, frankly. Ew. What is father-in-law, daughter-in-law flirting? Like, that's not a thing, Steven. Like, that no one, I mean, I'm sure it happens, but like, that's not a thing. (laughs) No. Like, what the fuck do you Mm -mm. think you're doing? No. Living Living in a fantasy world is what he's doing. Yeah, true. His poor wife. I know. Well, they were divorced. So oh, true. She was probably yeah. like, I'm out of here. Yeah, that's right. That's she right. knew what she was doing. Yeah. It's like, fuck this guy. <laughs> um, but thankfully, that search of his house did lead to something. And he was arrested on September 22nd, 2011. So on the computers and other belongings police collected from Stephen's home, they found thousands of photos taken of young girls and women without their knowledge. And those included a bunch of photos of Susan. And they arrested him on charges of child pornography and voyeurism. Mm. And in 2012, he was convicted on 14 counts of voyeurism. But they did drop the child pornography charges. Uh, They were thrown out by the Superior Court. I don't know, like, why. I don't know if maybe they, like, weren't sure they'd be able to convict him on that. And they just wanted to, like, convict him on something. I don't know. That's insane because obviously they had some kind of evidence that maybe they couldn't prove the ages of the people or something. Like maybe they looked like they were 12, yeah, maybe. maybe they could have been 24, you know? I don't know. That makes no sense though. Yeah. None. Um, about a week after Stephen was arrested, police began a search in a desert in Utah um, for Susan's body. And it was like a popular rock collecting area. So they were searching here, and after two days, cadaver dogs did find human remains and charred wood in the area, but nothing belonged to Susan. After Stephen was arrested, Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy, filed a motion to get formal custody of Charlie and Brayden. The boys were temporarily placed with their grandparents five days later, and they remained with them over the next few months. In November 2011, which was coming up on the two-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance, a judge set a custody hearing for the boys to take place 
in January the next year. And before the hearing, Josh created a website claiming that Chuck and Judy had abused the boys. And this led police to investigate him and like his computer and stuff. But instead of like finding that it was true, they found a ton of evidence on his computer indicating that he would not be a fit parent to have custody over the kids. Wow. What a dumbass. (laughs) Yeah. And this is disgusting. So just a warning here. They found images related to simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest. But they could not actually arrest Josh for this because there were no actual children. It was simulated. Is that like cartoon characters? Yeah. Like, is that what that means? Like simulation? Like I think so. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, I guess, but ew. Yeah. No. That's still wrong. Yep. So... They couldn't arrest him, but it did lead to a hearing about whether or not Josh would be able to get custody, you know, full custody back of his sons. And on February 1st, 2012, a judge granted full custody of Charlie, now seven, and Brayden, now five, to Chuck and Judy Cox. So he wasn't going to get custody of his sons, and the judge also ordered him to have a psychosexual evaluation Mm -hmm. um, by, like, a court-appointed examiner. And in this exam, Josh proved that he was unable to admit any shortcomings in himself. Basically, they said he had a narcissistic personality, which, like, big surprise. Duh, yeah. (laughs) And the court-appointed examiner did find, however, that Josh had, quote, adequate parenting skills, steady employment, and no criminal record. And this led the examiner to recommend that he would have supervised visits with the boys weekly. Hmm. And this would be the worst decision made in this entire case. But before I go any further, I do want to point out that I don't think this court examiner should be blamed at all. Um, He determined it safe based on information that he had. And in October 2012, a report was released saying that a lot of information about the Susan Powell disappearance was sealed at the time. And a lot of that may have risen major concerns about the children's safety. But at the time of the evaluation and the court order, none of that was available. So I don't think that like we should at all blame that person because they were just doing their job based on what they had. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting stressed out. (laughs) I know. No, I know. I'm going to give a trigger warning here because if you don't know this case, like I mentioned at the beginning, this next part does involve a child death. (sighs) Okay. On Sunday, February 5th, 2012, Josh had a supervised visit with his sons and a social worker brought the boys to the trailer that Josh was living in. And when they got there, Charlie and Brayden were excited to see their father and ran ahead into the house. Immediately after Josh got the boys inside, he grinned at the social worker, like looked her in the eyes and grinned at her and then slammed the door, locking her out. She called 911 right away, especially because she faintly smelled gasoline. And I'm going to dive into that 911 call in a minute because it's super interesting. It's, you know, another, I feel like a lot of times we hear about these horrible 911 calls and this is definitely one of them. Yep. The social worker tried everything to get into the home, but she couldn't. And she just kept smelling gasoline. And it's just so heartbreaking hearing her on this 911 call. So I'm going to play part of it. Hey, I'm on a supervised visitation for a court-ordered visit. 
And something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house, and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119, and I, I think it's 89th. Um, I, I don't know what the address is. Okay. That's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can, if I can find it. I'm this. Nothing like this has ever happened before at these visitations, so I'm really um, shocked. And I could hear one of the kids crying, but he still wouldn't let me in. But I think I need help right away. He, he's on a very short lease with CSHS, and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. He won't let me in the house. Whose house is it? He's got kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't. No, I'm okay. contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. Okay. And and who is there to exercise their visitation? I am. Uh, and the visit is who? with Josh Powell. And who's supervised? And he is the husband that I supervise. So you supervise and you're doing the visit? Yeah, you're I supervise yourself? I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself. If you're the I visitor. I do supervise myself. I'm the supervisor for the supervised visit. Okay. Well, aren't you the one make, aren't you the one making the visit? Or is there another person that you're supervising? No. There's, I'm the one that supervises. I pick up the kids with their grandparents. Yes. And then who visits with the children? Josh Powell. Mm, it's just so frustrating. He's like, I well, I can't do anything for you if I don't have the address. And then, like, <laughs> he's making it super complicated and not understanding. But who cares exactly what's going on? Doesn't... If someone says they smell gasoline, shouldn't you send help? Um, yeah, and don't they, doesn't the address pop up when you call? I guess maybe when it's a cell phone. I don't know. I, I, I always assume that it's just know. like that drives me crazy. the closest something, something pops yeah. up. Yeah. That's what I always thought too, but I don't know. And it wasn't like this was ages and ages ago. It was 2012. So yeah. like you'd think by then, but maybe not. This 911 operator just did not help at all. And he did not understand the urgency of the situation. And it took this operator over six minutes to tell her that someone was on the way and when he did, he told her... All right, we'll have somebody look for you there. Okay, how long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy... Well, this, is, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he he didn't get his kids back. And this is really... I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right. We'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you. Bye. Are you kidding me? Like, he was basically like, sorry, you're not urgent, so we'll get someone there when we can. Yeah. And right after she hung up the phone, the trailer exploded. Josh set fire to the trailer, with which killed both his children and himself, and... At this point, the social worker called 911 back about the fire that was now burning, and then the fire department arrived 13 minutes later, and this was 20 minutes after she made the first call, 
And if the first officer or the first operator had taken it more seriously, the boys' lives may have been saved. I mean, we don't know for sure, but that time may have helped. And it does get worse. Um, So just another trigger warning here. If you want to fast forward like 30, 45 seconds, you might want to do that here. Yeah. When they examined the boys' bodies, they found chopping injuries on their heads and necks, indicating that Josh had tried to murder them with a hatchet before setting the fire. And they also found evidence of gasoline spread throughout the home, leading them to like rule out that this was any sort of accident. And they knew that this was deliberate. And despite the boys' wounds from the hatchet, they died from smoke inhalation. Which is awful because that means that they lived after they were attacked by their father. Yeah. It just makes me physically ill. It's also very unclear why exactly he killed his sons. Like, did he just want to hurt someone else? Was he afraid they'd remember something? Was he just selfish? They obviously will never know because there was, he died too and there was no suicide note or anything. But it was later found that before this happened, Josh gave away all of their toys and also sent emails to family members and friends about what to do with his money and other parts of his life. And according to an ABC News article, Powell said in the emails, quote, he could not live without his boys. Yeah. So I think he just like was selfish and wanted to, you know, take away didn't want anybody else to be able to have them yeah um and it was definitely planned I think he felt like even obviously like we still don't know what happened to Susan but I think he felt like the walls were closing in on him and if he couldn't have his boys like no one could that's probably accurate so Stephen Powell Josh's dad who was in jail during this was told about his son and his grandson's death but he basically appeared unconcerned He said he, like, at one point, he said he knew that he, what happened, I can't talk. (laughs) He said at one point that he knew what happened to Susan's body and, like, he was, he was like, I'm obsessed with her. I know what happened. But two weeks after Josh's suicide, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right and refused to answer any other questions about Susan. Yeah. And I think he does know where she is. Yes, I agree. So five months after this horrific murder-suicide, court documents were released that said that Josh had once told a woman at a work party that, quote, the best place to dispose of a body is down a mine shaft. So after this, um, a mine explorer revealed that a mine 30 miles west of where Josh had claimed he had been camping that night had been filled with gasoline and burned down. So the same day, emails Susan had written to friends were obtained by the Salt Lake City Tribune, and in that, she talked about how controlling Josh was, his verbal abuse, and said, quote, every moment I step back and take stock of what I'm dealing with, it feels like a never-ending cycle, but I'm too afraid of the consequences, losing my kids, him kidnapping me, divorce, or actions worse on his part. No. So clearly Susan was scared and stuff was finally kind of starting to come out a little bit more. Yeah. If you are scared, if you are in a relationship and you are scared, do whatever, especially if children are involved, do whatever it takes to get out of it because it's not going to get better. I can, yeah, it's not going to get better. 
Yeah. And like as scary as it can be, there's a lot of resources to help and stuff like that. Yeah. And we can link those in the show notes to help if we. Yeah, definitely. Anything we can do. On February 11th, 2013, Josh's brother, Michael, who was the one that had helped him clear out their house in Utah after Susan disappeared, um, he committed suicide. And it had earlier been discovered that a vehicle that he had previously owned was abandoned at an Oregon wrecking yard. And they actually tested that and proved that human remains were once inside the truck. But that never led anywhere because they couldn't do anything more with that and then he committed suicide again without leaving a note interesting so wonder if he was involved too and his guilt just ate him alive yeah that's what a lot of people believe what a tragic family look at that dad really fucked his kids up yeah way to go steven In July 2015, the child pornography charges that Stephen had been accused of in 2012 but were thrown out did come back to him, and a jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. He was giving, given 17 months credit for the time that he had already served, and then he was released on July 11, 2017. Just over one year after that, Stephen Powell died from natural causes at a hospital in Washington. That's called karma. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's true. Police do say, though, that they wish that they could have spoken to him before his death. And, like, they were told that he was getting better. Otherwise, they would have, like, gone and tried to speak to him. But honestly, I don't think he would have given anything up. And they had plenty of time before that. Yeah. Like, years of time to to question him or whatever they were gonna do like well at one point he did like invoke his fifth amendment rights and he was like not gonna talk so i think they were thinking like maybe if he's on his deathbed like he might say something but i don't think he would have yeah he was too narcissistic i don't think he would have said anything too much pride yeah yeah i agree so now the three people that a lot of people believe were involved in Susan's disappearance were all dead and nobody left any note or information or anything about what happened. In January 2019, just over nine years after Susan disappeared and almost seven years after Josh Powell killed his sons and himself, a tip in the case popped up. The tip claimed that some of the mines in the area that were previously searched by police were either not searched at all or they were searched very poorly. And as far as I could find, they haven't released anything coming like about this search. But I personally feel like they either haven't been able to research the area or maybe they found something and they're not revealing it yet. Um, But I could not find anything any more information about where this tip led as of the recording of this episode so i don't know but i feel like that's a pretty damn good tip and just like the fact that josh had mentioned like burying a dead body in mines and it was near where he was quote unquote camping that night like it just seems like they need to do really thorough searches but then again if he did like burn the body there might be nothing left Yeah, that's true. Over time, Chuck and Judy Cox sued the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services over their grandson's deaths. However, a federal judge in Washington initially dismissed the case, explaining that federal law protects social workers. 
Um, but then in 2019, a U.S. Court of Appeals overruled this decision, ruling that Susan's family could pursue a, long, a wrongful death lawsuit against the State Department of Social Health Services, but they couldn't pursue anything against the social worker, which I totally agree with because that social worker yeah. was just doing her job. And like she wasn't notified of any potential danger that the boys could be in with their father. And if some of those records had been unsealed, they probably would have done like a neutral neutral meeting place or he wouldn't have gotten visits at all. Like, you know, she didn't know any better. Yeah. So, so yeah. I wonder why they had them sealed. Like they should know when it comes to children, you should know every single detail right. of what's going on. I don't know if some of it was just because it was like still an active case. Like Susan's, yeah, Susan's uh, disappearance was still like an active missing persons case. But I don't know. I know it's it's ridiculous that that communicate or that information was not communicated fully to everybody involved. Yeah. In July 2020, Washington State was ordered to pay Charles and Judy Cox 98 million dollars for the death of Charlie and Brayden. Um, so they did eventually win that lawsuit, um, but obviously that doesn't bring their daughter or their grandsons back. And unfortunately at this point with no body, all the evidence is pretty much circumstantial. And with the three people who may have been there that night that Susan likely died, Josh, his dad Stephen, and his brother Michael, with all of them dead, we may never know. So that is the tragic case of Susan Powell's disappearance and Charlie and Braden Powell's death. It's just so heartbreaking. And I was trying to find if like Josh has been, even though he's dead, I was trying to find if he has been like posthumously charged for their murder, but I don't think he has been, which like, if I were the family, I'd want him to be like, even, even though it doesn't like do anything. There's no justice, but yeah. So yeah, you know, I hope that one day, you know, maybe somebody will have some information that can get out there or maybe yeah. with more pressure on the police to search the mines, they'll find something. But as of now, there's nothing that has ever been found of Susan's or indicated where she went. Yeah. Such a tragedy. Such a sad case. It really is. So like always, I'll post photos of beautiful Susan and their beautiful little boys on Instagram. Um, so you can see all those photos at inhuman underscore podcast on Instagram and also on Twitter. I will post there as well. We do have a TikTok that we <laughs> try to post on. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but if you want to check us out on TikTok, we're inhuman podcast. And then we also have a Facebook group, inhuman podcast. Is it just inhuman podcast or inhuman? True y- yeah. Okay, just, just inhuman. inhuman. So you can go on there. We post all the episodes and you can uh, discuss and, you know, especially cases like this. We love to hear like what you guys think happened, stuff like that. So go join our Facebook group and um, also don't forget to leave us a rating if you enjoy. We're trying to hit 50 ratings by the end of 2021. So if you are listening on Apple and you have not left us a rating, please, please, please do. Please. You don't even have to leave a review. Just just tap the stars. Um, and it would mean the world to us. So we would really appreciate that. Absolutely. And with that, we will see you guys on Thursday. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep it human. Bye. Bye.